Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce and you're listening to Who the Fuck. And on today's episode, I'm sharing the mic with Richard Rosser. And Richard is an author, writer, well, author, filmmaker, and master storyteller who has honed his craft on TV on shows that I'm certain that you know, including Grey's Anatomy, Chicago Med, this is us, MacGyver, and 24. But beyond television, Richard has also written award-winning books, lectured at many acclaimed universities, and has most recently developed programs that empower individuals to express themselves through AI-enhanced storytelling. I'm super excited to have you here, Richard. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Nikki. I'm really excited to be here and talk. Yeah, absolutely. The last conversation that we had, our first conversation that we had, was so <laughs> inspiring to me. You've had just such an interest in storytelling, it seems, from a young age. So I thought it would be a good jumping off point for you to share a little bit about where that passion began. Sure. Well, I've really been a storyteller my entire life. And that comes from my mom and my dad, uh, primarily my dad. My dad uh, was a was an amazing raconteur. Uh, he his his favorite uh, story of choice was the long joke story, and um, so he would tell these you know weave these yarns for a minute or two or three, and then end up with you know a lot of times he would come up with this really you know what we call a groaner punchline, <laughs> and um, and it wasn't the punchline that mattered so much. It was it was getting there. It was sort of, you know, the, the, the age old, okay, you, you know, the destination isn't the key, it's the journey. And, and so we, we, I had a really fun time growing up with my brother and my dad, um, telling these stories. And, uh, and so that it really stuck with me. And, and when I, uh, you know, got in high school and then graduated and decided to go to college, I went to, uh, I went to a small, small liberal arts school, and they had one film course, which is completely different from from everything now. I mean, every you know, every university, every college, every every community college has a film program, a, a digital media program. And they have to uh, so, now, right? It's very different. <laughs> exactly. And and so back then there was one film course, and I took that film course and just had so much fun uh, with 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 creating these visual stories and. And so it really comes out of my listening to the years of stories from my dad, I think. Yeah, I really relate to that in a lot of ways, just sort of that building on the way that your life at home helped create that passion for you. Because growing up, I, I realized, you know, when my mom passed away a couple of years ago, how many things that she shared with us over the years, plenty of things that she opted not to share, which I wish I had a little more insight into. But I think, you know, it, it's magical because you recognize that, I mean, my grandparents had passed away either when I was really young or before I was even born. And she was able to really keep their memory alive and mm -hmm. reference, you know, her father's sense of humor as something that she saw in me. And so I think that there's something really beautiful about the familial connection that we can mm -hmm. draw from storytelling. And it speaks a lot to just the human nature and the way that we are configured to tell stories and share stories, because that is how we communicate. That's how we learn. That's how we share. And so I really 
feel like it's something that a lot of people have within them and don't ever, th- I mean, we all have it within us, but we, not everybody thinks about it. Right. So you were able to go uh, to school in a place where you were able to kind of dig into that passion a little bit more. And if I recall correctly, you made a student film while you were there that sort of shifted the trajectory of where you were going. It did. Um, I was really, really into animation when I was, uh, when I was, I mean, I still love animation, but when I was younger, I loved specifically, I loved like claymation, 3D animation. Uh, I can barely draw a stick figure and I'm not a great sculptor, but, uh, but I, I love the technique of claymation and, uh, there's something about it that just, it just, uh, it, it just seemed grounded in me or I seemed grounded in it. And, uh, so when, when I started learning how to make films, I actually took it upon myself to make little animated movies. And, you know, it's a classic story. My parents had a, had an eight millimeter film camera and I got a little cable release and somehow I have no idea how I figured out how to do this, but you know, I, I clicked and, and molded and clicked and molded and made these little animated movies. And so I, when I went to college, I took this one course and we had to do a final film for the course. And I said to my professor, Hey, could I make an animated movie? And he said, I guess, I mean, I, I don't know anything about animation. I don't know how to help you, but you could sort of do whatever you want. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll let you do it. And I said, yeah, I found an old Bolex in the, in the supply closet. And so I could bump up to 16 millimeter and shoot it with that. And he goes, you know what? Knock yourself out. You know, if you feel comfortable doing that, then go for it. So I made this little three minute black and white. It didn't even have sound, a uh, little animated movie. And uh, when, when we got the film back and projected it, he said, you know, this really turned out pretty good. You should enter it in some festivals. And I did. And it ended up winning a student Academy award. That's and incredible. Uh, it, it was truly incredible. So, uh, so I, 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 you know, they flew me out to LA for five days. I was going to, to school in Virginia and uh, these flew me out for five days of whining and dining and student Academy award celebrations and everything. And, um, and so I, I thought, all right, well, I, and I think, I think it's a given that I should be going into uh, the, the film business or TV business, uh, given, uh, that they think I have some sort of talent. Right. And so, um, I moved to New York, got in the film. Well, at that point it was the film music video commercial and TV business, right? I was, I was, you know, I dove in headfirst and, um, and had a really amazing time working on, uh, on animated shorts and commercials. And so I transitioned into feature films and TV shows uh, into fictional filmmaking as opposed to commercials and music videos and, uh, and really more long form and uh, ultimately ended up moving to Los Angeles. And when I got to LA um, I'd worked with a production manager who was working on this new fangled show called 24. At that point, no one knew anything about it except every episode was an hour in the day. And, uh, and so I said, Hey, it sounds like fun. Let's do it. And, um, so I worked on that and, and then parlayed that into, uh, working on, uh, Melrose Place, the reboot and the defenders with Jim Belushi and this is us and Chicago, Chicago med Grey's Anatomy and, and all these different projects. And, And of course a whole slew of TV shows and movies that no one's ever heard of that, uh, that <laughs> no one's seen the light of day, unfortunately, but it, it, it really, you, you had a really interesting point, Nikki, <clears throat> which was the fact that stories are ingrained in us and that we understand the world through stories. And, you know, thinking about the 10,000 or 
15,000 years that humans have been on the earth and trying to communicate with each other, we've really, we've really developed these storytelling techniques and our brains have followed suit. And so there's all this incredible brain science that backs up why storytelling works. Uh, have you ever heard of, there's a, there's a principle called the uh, narrative transport. Have you ever heard of that? No, I don't think so. So I would love for you to explain it. <laughs> so, so narrative transport, imagine that uh, you're reading your favorite book or you're watching your favorite TV show or movie and you just get lost in, in the narrative mm-hmm. and you've got a pizza in the oven and the, and the timer's going off and it's burning and it's smoking. And if there's someone knocking at the door and they're trying to deliver a package or something, and you don't hear, see, smell any of it because you are so absorbed. You've been transported to a different time, a different place with different characters. And so that's the ultimate goal of story and storytelling is to get our listeners, our viewers, our audience to a place where we've transported them that everything else just falls to the wayside. I love that. So it's magical. That's the concept of narrative transport. Yeah. It, I mean, the name suits it, obviously. I suppose it could have been implied, but I appreciate you sharing that. Because well, sure, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it makes me think about a couple of things. One, when I consider the the show that we're recording right now, that's something that I feel is so valuable in having people come and share their stories is because mm-hmm. that's what you're doing, right? You're You're coming on and you're narrating these parts of your life or these elements of who you are. And you're bringing people into that story. And one of the things that a friend of mine said a few weeks ago when we were talking, because I was saying, you know, I I want to lean into, you know, more speaking engagements and things like that. But I don't know that I'm somebody who wants to go on stage and just sort of project my story sure. to people. I feel like I'm a conversationalist. And she had said to me something that I felt really grateful for, which was, it, when you're talking to people on your show, it feels like I'm there with you having this conversation. Mm-hmm. And to me, that as a podcaster is really the goal, right? You want people to oh, feel absolutely. invested in this because that's how you get them to stick around. And regardless of if they come back for other episodes, obviously that's ideal, but you know, not every story resonates with someone. So there is so much to be said about the value, both as a host, what you're able to provide, but also who you're bringing on and how they're able to dynamically share their stories because it, you know, not everybody's a win. And that's, and that's hard. That goes, that goes as a host and a guest. Right. And I've done more guesting recently and I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I, I feel like some of these come out great and others I'm like, was that coherent? I don't know yet. So we're <laughs> going to find out when that gets released. And, you know, you're kind of in the moment with things like this, but as I'm doing it and as you say that, I'm thinking, but this is the, that's the whole point, right? It's like, how do you share that story in a way that's compelling to somebody else? Well, it is. And, and, and again, you bring up a really interesting point, which is there are different kinds of stories. We tell stories for a variety of reasons. And one of those is just sheer entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and something can be there for just entertainment and it doesn't have to be there for anything else. I mean, think how many times you said, oh, I'm just going to go watch a mindless TV show yes. or I'm going to go read, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I've got a book. It's, it's a beach read, right? Yeah. So you, you don't really expect much more from something like that than just entertainment. Mm-hmm. But then of course there are stories that persuade and there are stories that reflect and there are stories that that uh, that explore and and going back to you you talking about you know when your mother passed and she had this collective of stories about your grandparents that you didn't know but you felt like you knew them there was there was this link there was a bridge through your mother 
from you to your grandparents. Mm -hmm. And, and I find, because I've had, I've had some tragedy in my life. Uh, We had, uh, we had a son, uh, Nick, and he passed when he was 18 in a car accident. And so I've really accessed story and storytelling for my memories of him and to, to really work on creating that connection and keeping that connection with him going. And there are some amazing stories about how his energy, how he's done that from somewhere, wherever, wherever he is beyond wherever that is, but the energy that, that he's connecting with us. And, and I think you mentioned that you, you sort of have to be receptive to that. You do, yeah. And, and, and I think that you, in the stories that your mom told you about your grandparents, you know, they could very easily have just, you know, just sort of disappeared in the, in the, in the ether of all that we learn in life. And I'm sure with many other things that she told me that she wished I paid attention to. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of it, it's worth letting go, right? Yeah, exactly. But, but, but it, it's interesting how some of these things, they pop up. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and they pop up at times because of, of in the environment or, or what you're going through uh, emotionally or physically. And, and, and so, and, and one of the ways that Nick tends to communicate with us and, and he's been gone, it'll be 15 years in January. Um, but he communicates through numbers and very often I'll look at my phone and I'll see, you know, oh, it's 11, 11 a.m. And he, he communicates to us in multiple, num- multiple uh, numbers, right? 11, 11, 10, 10, 222. And, uh, but, but we, my wife and myself and, and our daughter, who's 28, we all have to be responsive to that. We have to be open to the fact that that's floating out there. And, you know, I, there may be people out there who say, oh, it's just a coincidence. You looked down at your phone and it's 10, 10. But it happens and I notice it. And sometimes it happens when I need it to happen. I you know totally I mean? understand it's, that. And yeah. I, I appreciate that you brought up that element of numerology because that's actually something that has significantly impacted or, or been a part of my life since losing my mom as well. It was mm-hmm. I was having this discussion mm-hmm. with my best friend when I was home right after we had lost her. And it was a discussion just around, you ever just kind of look and realize it's 11, 11, et cetera. And so when I met my now wife, Nicole, we were just friends at this point. And I had sent her an audio message and said something along the lines of, oh, do you ever catch this 11, 11? And she's very much opened my mind and heart to more spirituality over the time that we've been together. But she sort of brought me to this idea of sort of the depth of what that can mean and the connection of what that can mean. Mm -hmm. And so it's funny that you mentioned that because I've literally caught all of them today. And so it's been one of those things where it's like every hour I'm, I'm catching, you know, the 11, 11, the one, 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 two, two, two. And so it's like, I had this, my day started today with this woman sharing her story on an intro call about uh, helping her son navigate dyslexia. And ultimately he went on to become a, a doctor. And I feel like my day started off with my mom's presence, somebody who valued reading and storytelling so much and felt this immediate connection. And that just sort of reverberated throughout the rest of my day and all the other conversations I've been having, because my the interview that I had prior to this was with somebody who owns a business and uh, has a podcast called Book Thinkers. And so I'm mm-hmm. like, everything today is sort of surrounding this idea of storytelling 
And I think that to your point, yes, people might say it's a coincidence, but I've also kind of come to the mindset that I don't know that I believe in coincidences. I believe in right. timing, you know, divine timing, divine intervention. And when you shared your story with me a little bit about your son originally, one of the things that I can relate to so much and I appreciate you sharing is how important it is to keep saying their name, to keep telling their mm-hmm. stories and to and to have, have and hold that memory. Um, when you first lost your son, feel free to share as much as, as you'd like here. I, um, you know, obviously I understand it can be hard to talk about, but, you know, do you feel like there was a period of time where it was harder to, to open up and to share oh. stories about him? And you've kind of navigated through that to get to a place where you're more open and willing to that conversation? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it, it's, it's a little bit of an ebb and flow. Uh, sure. There are times that you're angry that, the, that they've been taken. And, and so part of that is to, to squelch your, your thoughts and push those, push those really hurting, hurtful thoughts away. Mm-hmm. But there are other times when I've leaned into remembrances and remembering little mannerisms and, and stories that, uh, you know, sort of family lore stories that we would tell, uh, when we were all four together or or little trips we'd take and, and something would happen and I, and I would remain, and I would embrace one of those little, little tidbits. And that's part of the, part of grief is, is embracing and leaning into those stories, those memories and, and, I guess letting them overwhelm you a little bit. Um, I have uh, one of my best friends. Uh, I, I've I've called him for years, and uh, you know, I mean, I mean, I mean, obviously we talk. But what I mean when I say I've called him for years, I mean when I've gotten to the point where uh, I'm I'm in the car, I really need to talk to someone about Nick, and uh, and I can call Phil, mm-hmm. and and he, he instinctively knows. And he's there on the other end of the line. And sometimes I just, I just break down and I sob and for a couple of minutes. And then he says, you okay. And I, and I, I say, yeah, thanks. And we don't even really talk. Yep. And, that's a good friend, right? Like I, yeah. my friend that I was just talking about, she somehow has this magic ability. And I think we, we see this in each other is to call at that exact right time when mm-hmm. something's happening and they just sort of know. And I really think that what you're touching on there is the importance of human connection as part of our storytelling journeys, because, you know, it's one thing to share your story, to put pen to paper, to put something on film, to record an episode. But part of that is doing that for us. It's that healing that we need for ourselves. It's the catharsis. Absolutely. And then there's also the value that it can bring to others in sharing that story and the safety that we feel from that connection to be able to examine those parts of our lives and ourselves and the people that we've lost or the, the, our own stories. Sometimes we have to grieve parts of our own lives. Right. And so I think when you consider the relationships that we have, that's such a massive part of where storytelling gains its value because it's, it's not, solely about us. It's about like how that story can proliferate. Well, it's also about creating a shared experience. Nikki. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the, and again, there's another term called neural coupling. And that is when, uh, when I'm, you know, if, if I'm speaking or talking or telling a story and I'm sharing something that the audience, again, whether it's one person 
or it's a couple hundred people in a, in a, in a, in a banquet room at a charity event or something like that. If they, if they are latching onto what I'm talking about, there's a shared experience and neural coupling is the coupling of, of our brains coming together for that shared experience. And, and so that's why, I mean, I, I do a lot of work with, uh, with students. I, I do seminars and workshops. I, t- I teach. And then I also consult with, with uh, you know, startups and entrepreneurs. And I'm always working with folks to figure out what the story is that they want and need to tell, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the founder's story for folks who are doing, you know, who, who are entrepreneurs who are creating startups is so important because what it does is it gives everyone out there an idea of where this idea came from, where the, where the, the product or the service or whatever it is came from and why it's important. Yeah. And that, and a lot of times people think, Oh, the only reason I need a story is for marketing. But when you're an entrepreneur or you have any sort of business, it's not just marketing stories can be incredibly powerful for the employees who are working right alongside you, mm-hmm. for a team, for your R&D department, for, for your sales department to go out and not, not just market through, through videos or ads or whatever, but also to, to, to let the folks know who are clients how they can use this, this, prop, this property, this pro, you know, the, the, uh, the service. And a lot of times stories come back to the founder, the creator, from the field yep. and people come up with, uh, Hey, oh, you know, I, I, I use your service or, pro- or product for uh, a, a, in a little bit different way. And that can influence the way that uh, your R and D department or the, you know, I mean, you know, even if you don't have a, a physical R and D department, it's still the person who's creating the product or the service. They can then take that info and plug it or tweak it into the, into the mix. And so story it's, it's, it's a back and forth. It's a, uh, it's an exploration just as much as it is um, an education. I love the way that you just explained that. And you're totally right. I've worked at businesses of all sizes and I, having worked at plenty of startups, it is really important both as an employee and as a consumer of those companies to feel connected to what they're doing. And especially as a startup, I find it incredibly difficult if you don't feel connected to somebody's mission. It, in yeah. fact, is the reason that I probably wouldn't choose to work at a startup that is extremely small again, unless I were one of the people starting <laughs> it, um, is because you have to be pretty much like as invested emotionally as the person who started that company when you're one of the first five or 10 people in it. And you don't have necessarily the upside that the person who started the company has. So what is it that's driving you to push this company forward other than potential? It it needs to be something hopefully that you're viscerally connected to. And for a long time, I worked in HR tech and the thing that I really had to latch onto was a story that related to my own life, which was I graduated in 2008. There were no jobs. I had a film Mm. degree. It was not a great time. And I was like, what the hell am I going to do with my life? And when I found a job in HR tech, it wasn't that I was super jazzed about this idea, but what I saw was an opportunity to try to help people who didn't have jobs 
get mm. jobs because I knew right. what it felt like to be unemployed. And I didn't want anybody else to have that feeling of, I don't know what to do with my life. I'm struggling. I can't point myself in the right direction. So for me, it was a way to sort of philanthrop philanthropically execute right. on my own needs that like weren't met at the time. And o- over the course of my career, that sort of um, waned as I found that I needed something that drove me with a bit more purpose. But mm-hmm. I think to that end, the thing that has kept me engaged with companies over the course of my career has been finding what is that thing that I can hold on to that feels true to me. And in some way, that is a story, whether that's a story about, you know, the way a community comes together to do something or people work together to create something magical. At the end of the day, you hit the nail on the head, like the idea of these shared experiences is and neural coupling. Is that the term? Yes. I I love that. It's it's profound. And I think that it's something that as human beings, as you said, you know, we're wired for that. So mm-hmm. if it it's one thing to sort of have a group think mentality, it's another to be emotionally invested in the way a story is told or the way that we consume yeah. something. And which, which leads me to segue to the next thing that's really, really important in storytelling is that emotional connection. Absolutely. Because we, you know, we think about the stories you hear and, and we all have friends who sort of ramble on, right? And they, they don't necessarily have a point to their story. <laughs> and, and, and you sort of get to the end and you go, okay, why did I just invest, you know, two minutes of my time? Yep, you know? Yeah. But, but it's important for there to be some sort of an emotional connection, even if a story is just meant for entertainment in some ways that makes it even more important for there to be an emotional connection. If, if right. the story is just meant for entertainment, but that's one of the things that I, when I'm working with, uh, with, you know, in, in consulting with folks or I'm working on teaching folks that I talk about is, is figuring out what your story is going to be before you tell it. And, you know, when, when we're just on a podcast like this, it's, we're just, you know, we're talk, talking off the cuff. Um, but when you're, when you're actually using story in, in, uh, in a set, in a, in a setting or a sequence mm-hmm. for if you're working with a team or if you're trying to communicate to a group of people, uh, you need to think about the story ahead of time. And it's, it's like anything, you know, you need to practice a little bit, make sure you've got the beats down, have thought through it, uh, figure out how to add some humor, maybe add a, a little bit of a joke to the story and, and create that story so that it can serve your purpose. Right. Uh, I, I work with a career tech school and uh, they came to me and said, hey, we, we love your approach to storytelling. We'd love for you to create a, uh, a workshop storytelling for trainers, because we find, you know, some of our trainers, all they do is tell stories and they don't really, you know, they don't talk about the training itself. And on the flip side, on, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we've got folks who never tell a story and the, some of the material is so bland that people are, you know, people are blaming out. Yeah. yeah. And, and so they said, there must be a sweet spot. And I said, absolutely. There's a sweet spot, right? It's, it's learning how to tell stories with purpose and a point to use them to exemplify the point that the trainer is making. And so we put this uh, we put this workshop together, and it was really interesting because as I started flushing this workshop out, I, I thought, okay, now these these folks are trainers; they're not storytellers by trade, and so they may be a bit intimidated by having to come up with a story 
like that, that right. works for their, their training seminar. And, and I started thinking about using chat GPT and this new technology to help flush out possible stories that then these folks can add to and embellish and use within their training series to, uh, to make their points. And, and also stories are really good at help, helping people retain information. That was something uh, that I was going to ask yeah. about too, is because there, there's something to it, right? I mean, the amount of quite honestly, pardon my French on this, you know what the show it's called, but it's like the amount of shit <laughs> in my brain that doesn't need to be there, but I remember things because of the story associated yes. with it. Right. And even just television as an example is a great uh, way to consider that too, is the, or song, the lines that we remember from TV, mm-hmm. movies, uh, music, it, resonates with you in some way on a visceral level that allows you to retain it. Now, do you need to retain it for all of time? Probably not. Do, no. do I think I could eradicate some of it? Yes, absolutely. Do I know how? No. Um, but I think that when we get to a place where we recognize that that is creating some sort of connection to the material, it gives mm-hmm. us so much more value. Well, let, let me back up a second uh, and and just talk about one of the breakout sessions that it's, it's sort of one of my little signature breakout sessions. Um, and what I do is first I have the group of folks come think about a sense memory from their childhood, right? Okay. So something that you remember smelling, tasting, hearing, seeing, and think about that and just sort of lock into just, just to one of those. And okay. then I talk about, okay, who knows what a haiku is, right? A haiku, for those of you who don't know, is it's a poem and it's made of five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. So there's a total of 17 syllables. And, uh, and very often they're about nature, but we don't get into that. It's, it's, it's just for this purposes, it's just to tell a story. And so I say, okay, then once we've got those two things, let's combine them. So create a haiku, because if I say to a group of folks, a group of 20 or 30 folks, hey, everyone, I want you to write a haiku. Well, those those people are going to sit there for 10 or 15 minutes trying to figure out what to write a haiku about. Totally, totally. But if I give them, if I or if I if I have them reach deep into their past and come up with a sense memory, they, well, first of all, I guarantee you, it's going to have some emotion to it mm-hmm. because it's from their childhood. Yep. And whether it's about, you know, a memory about a grandparent who passed and that is no longer with us or a memory about, you know, just childhood sitting around with your brother or sister, it's, it's a moment in the past that is, that is only remembered. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what that does is it's a shorthand to me getting these folks to come up with a haiku almost in an instant. That's such a brilliant idea. I love that not only did you recognize that it would be challenging and sort of a stalemate probably for a lot of people trying to figure out, well, what do I even write about? It's like the pressure's on. How do you get right. to like just that first Blank point? Yes. Yeah. But then to to say well, let's pull it from your childhood because you know everybody has something. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I feel is really incredible about this approach too is the variety of feelings that it could elicit. Oh, we've had some incredible. One woman got up and she she told a haiku about the fact that her mom used to rub her forehead to ease her anxiety or nervousness. 
And another, another gentleman got up and told a haiku about the fact that he and his father had only hugged once in his life. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So powerful. And, uh, yeah. I, I mean, think about that. And, and my haiku, um, oh gosh, I can't remember it now. It's, uh, it's something about um, uh, the rain poured all day. My brother and I played blocks on the porch. I really miss him now. Oh my gosh. And you just told like a very compelling story. And, and that's the beauty of a haiku, 17 syllables. You can't get much shorter than that. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't. Well, you, you actually can. So let me. So the, I'm sorry, my, one I my other, really, go ahead. Well, one of my other go-to breakout sessions is Hemingway's six-word story. Have you ever heard about Hemingway's? No, I haven't. Okay. So, so Hemingway's six-word story is baby shoes for sale, never worn. Now, think about that. You say baby shoes for sale, and I conjure up these little sort of white leather baby shoes. They're all scuffed and marked mm -hmm. up, and they're, you know, they, maybe one of the laces is broken, has tied a little knot. And, and then and as I'm visualizing that, then the second part of that comes in and says never worn. I have to erase all that, right? And I have to reimagine those baby shoes now. They're pristine, the laces, uh, maybe there's a little uh, string with a little uh, little price tag, right? Um, that's in one of the eyelets. And then in our brains start to fill in the cracks and we think, well, wait a second, baby shoes for sale, but they were never worn. What happened here? Oh my gosh. You know, and, and you start to think about, you know, uh, the baby passed, did it pass before was able to need to wear shoes or did it pass in stillbirth? Or, I mean, the possibilities, uh, in the story are incredible. And, and so you can go from 17 syllables to six words. And so I use each of those for, for a different purpose, but it really gets folks to thinking about, uh, about being a storyteller in a very, very short period of time. Yes. Because a lot of people, Nikki, a lot of people think, and they say, oh, I'm just terrible telling stories. And I, you don't believe, you, you wouldn't believe how many people have, have, I've worked with and they say, oh, I'm just, I'm a terrible storyteller. And next thing you know, they've got this haiku about their mom rubbing their forehead to, to calm them down or telling a haiku about the fact that they only, their father and they only hugged once in their life. And I mean, those are incredible stories that in that instance were told in 17 syllables. Mm -hmm. And so everyone, everyone has the ability to tell stories, compelling stories. They just have to dig. And, and, and that's not to say that stories have to be wrapped up in, in death or grief, but it, there has to be an emotional connection, right? Absolutely. And, you know, the, the mom rubbing the forehead or one, one guy talked about, you know, smelling the hush puppies that his mom cooked on a hot summer day. Uh, the hush puppies are these little, you know, sort yep. of... Uh, Corn, corn, uh, <laughs> corn uh, things that you, you fry, and but but there's an emotional connection, right? And um, and so if if you're trying to figure out how to tell a story and what to tell a story about, reflect on what it is that you're trying to communicate ultimately. And if you're you know if you're going to be speaking in front of a group of folks about overcoming adversity, then think about how you've overcome adversity in your life. And 
figure out what the story is, but you don't have to tell it. You don't always have to tell it in sequential order. And that is, this is such an important is, point. Thank yes, you for saying this is that. The beauty, right? This is the beauty of, of story is sometimes you can start in the middle or you can start in the end. Some of the, some incredible feature films have started at the end and then, or, or TV shows, and then you know where the characters are going to end up. And the tension, the tension of getting there is so intense and it's really heightened because you know where the character is going to end up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, episodes of Better Call Saul or Breaking, you know, I mean, there are episodes that have used of TV that have used that to great effect. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and there's also something about sort of turning on a dime, uh, you know, in Hemingway's six word story when he says baby shoes for sale. Okay, that's it's it's almost like a bit of a setup and not a punchline, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, but it's baby shoes for sale. And again, I got a, I, I had a visualization of these baby shoes that are scuffed up and everything in my mind. But then as soon as he says never worn, I have to backtrack on that, and it makes me think about whoa, 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 wait, wait, what? I, I have to reconsider how I had envisioned these baby shoes, and so you can use. The sequence, you can, there are all these, all these tips and tricks and, and, uh, and tactics, storytelling tactics, right? And techniques. We can use our voice. We can use the timber of our voice. We can use the volume. We can, we can speak softly. And then as something gets more intense, we can get more intense about it. We can use excitement to create tension in our voice, in our mannerisms. I tend to talk with my hands. I know you Same. do too. <laughs> and, um, I'm trying not to hit my mic. <laughs> right. And it, it's, it's, it's about putting the whole thing together and really almost letting the story flow through you. And it's, and it's putting it together in a way that you know how you want to tell the story. You feel comfortable enough with the story and you can use that to help folks understand where you've come from, what you've overcome and how that story can help them in their situation potentially uh, overcome a, a challenge or an issue or, or a problem uh, for themselves. Yeah, it's really incredible the way you articulated and explained all of that. I really appreciate it. Both your methodology, I, I think, is just so intelligent and incredible to think about being somebody who's in that environment, hearing that from you and just really being confronted with, you know, what is the thing that comes to mind, whether that's good, bad, or indifferent, and then what you can do with something that maybe you haven't even accessed yet. And also it's mm-hmm. 444 right now. Um, my Oh, <laughs> there you go. It is. <laughs> um, and so I, I think one of the things that you lean into with that too is how much can you unlock when you open yourself to the possibilities without the constraints of, you know, this is what it should be. This is what it has to be, mm-hmm. especially when we're delivering a narrative, particularly I think about ourselves. Um, for myself, I'm still finding that there are these moments where it's like, well, what's the best way to frame this or the best sequence to mm-hmm. share this information? Because there's so much. And I said to my wife the other day, I recorded an episode and I was really excited and proud of it about it, but it also made me think, okay, what are the details that need to be shared? And what are the details that don't need to be shared? Because Mm -hmm. for me, when I go back and I access these stories, 
to me, the details all matter because they contributed to the way the story fleshed out. But mm-hmm. to somebody who's listening, they're not all relevant. You just need enough to make sure that somebody's engaged with it. And so I I wonder in your experience, both in your career and your life, but also even as a, an educator in this realm, do you find that that is, tends to be one of the harder parts? Far- do you find that tends to be one of the, the harder, harder parts? parts? <laughs> of course, I'm like, yes, Freudian slip. Absolutely, absolutely. And so let, let me let me tell a little story, right? So uh, I'm working on 24, right? And for those of you who may not, you know, who were living under a rock back in the early 2000s, 24 was this zeitgeist show about this counter terrorist agent played by Kiefer Sutherland who is going out and he is he is rounding up the bad guys, right? So. Each episode is an hour in the 24 days, or 24 hours of a day. And so at one point we were, we were doing a sequence and someone said, oh, you know, we're, we're in this hotel room. We should have someone come through with a tray of sandwiches because everyone's hungry. It's, it's hour like 17 and we haven't seen anyone eat. And uh, we're filming the sequence and one of the executive producer creators came down. He was, you know, was hanging out watching the monitor and he walks over to the prop guy and he goes, can you give me that please? And he takes the tray and he takes over the garbage and he just dumps all the sandwiches in the garbage can. And he said, I'm sorry, but there will be no food allowed in any shot from this point forward. And we were all like, what? But, but, you know, these people haven't eaten in 17 hours. And, you know, everyone was sort of talking and saying this to him. And he said, look, people don't tune into our show to watch people eat, sleep or poop. Right. Think about it. They tune into our show to see them catch the, you know, catch the bad guys, overcome. They, they don't want them stopping. They want them to keep moving forward. They want them to break through any and every obstacle. We can suspend had, reality for that. Right. And, and there, I, I disagree with him. I mean, I agree with him in total, but I disagree with him on, in a couple of places. I think there were a couple of moments where you could have had someone, you know, just grabbing a bite to eat. That's sort of fun. And, and there was one moment where Kiefer sort of, you know, sort of fell asleep as he was waiting for, uh, you know, a, a bad guy to show up at one point. And I thought, oh, that's brilliant. Right. He almost falls asleep, but he doesn't. Yeah. And, but they cut it out, you know. But but the, the point is that you have to be specific about your details and you have to be specific about your points. And uh, before you got to sort of the end of what you were talking about before, I was going to talk about the honing in on details, but also getting rid of the lack of detail. Right. So there's sort of two ends of the spectrum. Right. Number one, you hit it when you said you know, not everyone needs to know everything. And and you're right. You sort of have to pick and choose what is most important for people to know as I'm telling my story, right? Do they need to know the brand of the vacuum cleaner? Not necessarily, unless there's a point about it being a eureka moment or something like that, right? right? But on the, on the flip side, if you, you've, we've all heard people get up and, and tell a story or a joke or, or, and they say, yeah, well, when I was a kid, I was, I don't know, I was like seven or eight. And, and I think it was when I was living in New York or it may have been I was living in Miami at that point. Okay, who cares? You lost me, right? You're getting bogged down in the lack of detail, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're telling a story, the audience doesn't know whether you were seven or eight. They don't care if you were living in New York or Miami. I mean, if it has a bearing on the actual story, then yes, that's important. But they don't want to hear the storyteller hemming and hawing about the details of their own memory. Right. 
Right. So it's important to just latch onto something and go with it. Right. Unless someone's going to call you out on, wait a second, you weren't seven. I knew when you were seven and that didn't happen until you were nine. I mean, but, but how, how often is that going to happen? You say, yeah, when I was seven and I was living in, you know, the lower East side of New York city and and it's definitive. It gets people to, to visualize that. If you start talking about I was seven or eight, maybe I was nine, then they're, they're like, okay, I visualized seven, but now he's talking about nine. It's counterproductive. So that's one of the things that you talked about. You need to pick and choose your details and make sure that they are, in fact, details. Right. So that the audience can visualize that experience and go along that, you know, be transported with you as you're imparting that experience to them. That's such a great way of framing it too, Richard. And I, the thing that it reminds me of is when I was in school, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this having spent time in the film industry as well, is that one of my professors said to me, sometimes you'll leave your favorite things on the editing room floor. And it is the hardest to let go when you're like, it was a great shot. It was an amazing scene, but it doesn't really need to be there. As you pointed out, if it's not going to ultimately help the story progress or create more emotion or bring people further along for the ride, then ultimately it serves as a distraction. And one of the (laughs) things that I, I wonder, you know, as you've gone through your career is, do you feel like you've adapted the way that your own storytelling has grown, particularly going from someone who has been in the industry to educating about it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I take storytelling techniques that I learned while we were filming eight, nine seasons of 24, and I use them. I use them when I'm working with folks uh, on a consulting basis. I use them when I'm teaching students how to tell stories, and I use them in my everyday stories. Uh, here's You talked about, you know, because you went to film school. Um, I, I don't know. If, have you ever heard of the term uh, POV of nothing? Um, I mean, I want to say yes, but it's been years. So let's, so, let's go with this. I'll let you go. <laughs> so the, one of the worst shots that you can cut in, and, and this sort of goes back to my hemming and hawing about whether I was seven or eight or I lived in New York or, or Florida. A POV of nothing very often happens with, with younger uh, or inexperienced filmmakers, right? You'll see a character walks or opens the front door and they're looking, waiting for someone to arrive. And so yeah. you cut to a POV of nothing. You cut to a POV of the street and there's no cars. There's nothing happening. And it's their POV of looking, waiting for someone to arrive, but it doesn't happen in that shot. And, and so it's very disconcerting to an audience because they're, they're, they're searching. You see a woman walking a stroller, you see a guy riding a bike and you, you think, okay, what's going to happen now? Is that guy on the bike going to come over and pull out a gun or, you know, and, and, and it turns out, no, it's a, it's a POV of nothing. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's in storytelling, having a story that doesn't have a point or having details that don't settle on the actual detail. It's in essence, a POV of nothing. It's, it's hard for the audience to grasp onto. It's hard for them to latch onto what you're pointing out to them because ultimately you're really not pointing out anything. Right. Right. And, and so I've learned uh, to, as a storyteller, you want to commit. And, and again, you know, your audience isn't going to know whether you were seven, eight or nine at whatever point in your life you're telling the story. Um, 
But if you commit to one, then they can they can latch onto that and follow you on that journey. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so it's it's really important for folks to, you know, to to again to practice. I mean, think about comedians. Think about Jerry Seinfeld, right? He had the most popular TV, one of the most popular TV shows in history. And now he's what, 20 years later, he's still working on, you know, he'll go out and he'll put together a comedy routine. Now, if you hear him talk about that, it's not easy. He'll start off with 10 minutes. He'll go to a, you know, one of his favorite comedy places, the cellar or whatever. And and he'll put that 10 minutes on and he'll end up with a minute out of that 10 minutes. You know, 10 minutes and he ends up with a minute of gold, Jerry Gold, right? And then he'll go a a week later and he'll put on, you know, take that one minute and he'll add another 10 minutes and he's got 11 minutes and he'll end up with two or maybe three minutes. So it's going to take him a while to hone that material for an hour or two hour special on Mm -hmm. HBO Showtime or whatever it is. He's Jerry Seinfeld. Think about if he's paying attention to that much detail, he's going into that much trouble to get an hour or two hours worth of material over the course of two, three, four, five months, right? Well, the rest of us who aren't genius, comedic geniuses or storytelling geniuses, it might take us a little bit, right? And so it's important for, uh, for, for us as storytellers to rehearse stories, think, and, and it's, it's, really, it's really great if you can tell a story to someone and get the reaction. Yes. But barring that, I mean, I was doing a, I, I did a storytelling evening at a local community college. And what I do is I go in and, and for about an hour, hour and change, I tell stories about the, the trenches of the TV and film business. But because I'm at a, a community college, I'm using those stories to talk about networking and talk about professionalism and talk about being on your A game. And so every story that I tell is the basis for a little bit of a life lesson or something that I learned along the way. And so the stories are, they're entertaining. You know, I've got stories about Chris Walken and, and Jim Belushi and Kiefer Sutherland. And, 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 and so when I get in the room, people are excited just to hear my stories. Mm-hmm. They're also excited to hear the stories because they're really about being in the trenches in the TV business or film business on a day-to-day basis. But then I make that connection to how the story interplays with how those folks are working on trying to get into the business, get a career in the film and TV business. And so it takes that extra step and goes beyond just the stories themselves and then reflects on those stories in a way that the folks who are listening to it, they can, when, when, you know, the evening's over, they can remember those stories, but it also helps them in their career of figuring out how to, you know, how to get in the TV business and sustain a career over, over years. And so it's, we always have to think about what the story is, what it's about and how it's going to affect our audience and what they're going to take away from, from that story ultimately uh, when, when they leave. Yeah. And I think one of the things too, is why you're telling it, right? The entire premise of you going in and being able to share your experience to to help enlighten them as to how they can advance their lives and their careers mm-hmm. and find their passions. You know, it's 
I've worked with many people as mentors and just individuals who could name drop all day long. And it can be an interesting story to hear. It can. I mean, I, I certainly don't have celebrity interactions on a regular basis, so I can appreciate that tremendously. I also feel like what you're what you're exemplifying in the way that you're doing this is that the value of sharing that story increases substantially when you can make it connect with the person in a way that not just you know, connects with them in an emotional way or a, a relevant way, but in a way that actually helps them move forward in their life and progress. And I think that it can be really easy to see ourselves as people who won't ever have the opportunity to meet certain people or do that mm -hmm. thing. But when you are in the same room with somebody who has done that and they're telling you what they can do and or what they've done and how these interactions have transformed your life, then you start to feel like that could be accessible to me. And maybe that's a possibility. That's a great and point. you expand your ideas of your own potential. I think when you interact with people who share their stories, especially when you're sharing physical space with them, because it's one thing to be in a virtual environment, um, particularly one where you don't actually even know the people and you're just listening, right? right? <laughs> it's the, you're, you're abstract to them. They don't know who you are. But when you're in an environment where, you know, Richard Rosser on stage or or in the room sharing with you his stories, you have those experiences and those people could very well go up to you after the fact and ask you follow-up questions to the stories oh, that you shared, do, right? Me. Of course they do, <laughs> because they would be foolish not to, you know? And so I think that that's really just one of the wonderful ways too, that storytelling and the decisions you make around how you do it can ultimately impact really the trajectory of somebody's life. Oh, yeah. And and let's reflect back on a couple of these uh, terms that we've talked about with regard to brain, the brain science behind storytelling. Right. Neural coupling and narrative transport. And think about what you and I just sort of explored uh, talking about this evening of storytelling that I do and think about the neural coupling. Right. I've got folks there who. I, so I went to a very, very small rural high school. There were 52. It was, it was a public high school, but there were 52 in my graduating class. And so going in, in one of the evenings that I've done, I did at that high school. Now it's a much bigger high school now. But the point is that I come back from California. I grew up in Oklahoma and I'm giving this, you know, this talk and the speech or, you know, telling these stories. And there are students there who are essentially where I was you know, when I graduated from high school. And so there is a shared connection. The neural coupling is like completely coupled, right? Mm -hmm. And and so those students, and, and again, I, we don't have to have gone to the same high school, but even if I'm just going into a, 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 a you know, a community college and I'm talking about how, you know, when I went to school, there was only one film course, right? That, what it does is it tells folks that they have a chance. Yes. Which is something that you you just hit on. Um, which is which is a fantastic thing to be able to communicate, and uh, and in the same sentence talk about you know working with Chris Walken or Jim Belushi or or uh, Kiefer Sutherland or you know Madonna. I've done music videos with Madonna, so it's you know it, it's I try not to name drop just a name drop. I try to name drop so that it makes sense within. Oh my gosh, you know, I, I graduated from Deer Creek High School class of I was one of fifty two, and look where I ended up. If I can do it, chances are good. You can do it as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's just really inspiring to hear that when you see it in 
in that tangible reality that you exist in. And one of the things that I wanted to ask, I know we're at the top of the hour now. Do you have a couple of extra minutes? Oh, sure. Of course. <laughs> oh, awesome. Thank you. I, um, you know, something that you, when you were mentioning uh, the Jerry Seinfeld stuff, it's sort of perfect timing because we're actually going to see a comedy show tonight uh, with Taylor oh. Tomlinson. And she's a comedian that she's pretty young. And something that I find so compelling about her comedy is that it is extremely relatable and it's the appropriate level of snark for my liking. And mm-hmm. so I, th- I think that, you know, comedy is a way for people to really share stories yes. that are both relatable, but also give us a sense of levity where there can be trauma. Right. And, and she did this bit in one of her last um, specials on Netflix. And she's like, talks about how her mom passed away when she was really young. And she says, you know, it's going to be rough for like the next six minutes or so, but I promise I'll make you laugh. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll forget she's even dead. And like, it's just one of those things that, you know, I had lost my mom a couple of years ago. I was going into it being like, okay, like I can handle this. This will be fine. And it really gave me a sense of peace because she's gone most of her life not having her her biological mother in her life. And it gave me an appreciation for the fact that I had that. It gave me appreciation for the fact that like she can make light of this and it allowed me to feel like my mom who had a great sense of humor would have appreciated it, you know? And so there's such a level of connection when it comes to like how the sharing of our stories, whether that is in a book that we're writing that's a memoir or a film that's being produced or a documentary about a story. And it can be absolutely terrible traumatic conditions, or it can be a comedic act about terrible traumatic conditions that you've overcome or just beautiful, successful moments in your life that you've achieved, so you know? So true. And and I love that you you brought this up because humor, humor can be interwoven in, in almost in, in any situation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I gave a eulogy uh, at my dad's memorial service and I used one of his favorite jokes and I tweaked it and changed it for the specific situation. And for those folks who he had told that joke to, they, they knew Exactly. I love that so much. And, and, and for the folks who, who, you know, didn't know him as well or had never heard him tell that joke. I mean, it it was, you know, it was still enjoyable for them, but, Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I belabored that, you know, I thought, is this right? And and I thought, of course it's right. I mean, he would love, have loved for me to tell that joke as part of, of this eulogy. And, and so it's, it's really important to, uh, to, to use all these techniques and tricks and tips in, in whatever types of story you're telling, even, even a eulogy, uh, because again, it's the, it's the ultimate emotional connection that we make with folks. Uh, and again, when, when I'm up and I'm, and I'm doing one of these, you know, evening of stories, when I'm talking about the fact that I graduated from a small rural high school with a graduating class of 52 kids, it, it, it says something about to, to, to everyone right? About the possibility of the journey that I've, that I've gone on and, and how they can go on a similar journey potentially because it's accessible. Yes. And um, so I, I'd love to, I'd love to uh, just leave uh, your, your viewers, listeners with Please a do. little bit of, of a, uh, well, I don't want to call it a homework assignment. It's a reflection, right? So what I would love for everyone to do is, is as you move about your life, the next day or so, the next 24 hours, reflect on story 
and how story takes a part or place in your life. So that can be you telling someone a story. You can be hearing someone else tell you a story, or you can think about the nonverbal stories that you're telling yourself about you and your life and your challenges, your issues, your your, uh, trials and tribulations. And so as you move forward through life, the next 24, 36 hours, uh, take a a moment every once in a while and, and reflect on how story works within your life and your thought process and how you communicate with, to, and from other folks. I absolutely love that. What a wonderful way to round out the conversation, Richard. You you know, I have to say that when I think about that, first of all, I'll be doing that. Um, Not that this doesn't already (laughs) encompass a lot of the storytelling elements of my life to be podcasting, but to really just revisit those parts that, you know, we kind of step away from as we evolve and and grow away from our creativity. I think it's important to draw back to that and and think about, you Mm -hmm. know, People who are in sales, your storytellers, really good storytellers or really bad storytellers, really depends on what type of salesperson <laughs> you are. But like, you know, we think about it as just such a creative endeavor that we don't necessarily think about how much it applies to just our everyday life and the, and the things that we even tell ourselves. And I feel like that's just an important thing that you highlighted, Richard, that the narrative that we tell ourselves, the things we say when nobody's listening, right? Those are the things also that really drive us to do the things that we do for better Mm -hmm. and for worse. And so being in touch with that is so important. Um, So as we're we're closing out here, I do want to tell everyone that Richard also has a recent book, ChatGPT (laughs) Simplified, um, for people who might want to really re-explore storytelling in a different way or maybe feel like it would be helpful to have a little bit of something to propel them forward because I've myself recently discovered the benefits of ChatGPT as has my wife and we're loving it. So um, you can find that on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes, but um, you can also learn more about what Richard is doing and contact him for a consultation if you're interested at AIExplained.ai. And Richard, is there anywhere else you'd like people to find you or follow you on social? No, that's the that's the easiest place. It's AIExplained.ai. And uh, it's, it's all about exploring Really, because I wrote the book through a storyteller's lens. Uh, So it's exploring this technology uh, from a creator, a storyteller's viewpoint and how to use it to to really think outside the box, be more creative and come up with things that you never imagined you would. It's so amazing. I really can't wait to dive into it. My wife has been really, really loving how she's been able to leverage AI because she has just such an imaginative brain and she has these very vivid dreams and she feels like AI is giving her the way to actually visualize some of those things in ways she couldn't have ever imagined. So I just really appreciate that you and I are having this conversation at this time, because if this were two months ago, even it wouldn't have been, you know, I wouldn't have had that level of connection to the value of AI in my own life and in my experiences. So thank you so much for just being here, sharing your story, sharing the importance of stories and bringing that education and just connection to our audience. I really appreciate you, Richard. Oh, it's been so, such a pleasure, Dickie. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Well, gang, that's all for this episode of Who the Fuck. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. 
Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Acid. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interviews. Electric Acid.